Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Jessica Fern. Jessica is a psychotherapist who specializes in providing support for individuals, couples, and people in multi-partner relationships. Jessica's groundbreaking book is called Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Consensual Non-Monogamy. In it, she explores the principles of attachment theory in non-monogamous relationships, which is a practice of having multiple sexual and or romantic partners at the same time. And everyone in this type of dynamic is aware and consents to it. What I found brilliant in Jessica's work and research are the connections she drew between non-monogamy and attachment theory. Attachment theory, or styles, as you may have heard, is a framework for understanding the patterns that inform how we relate and bond to others. Polysecure is a book I wish I had read when I was in my own polyamorous relationship. It was a pleasure to get to pick Jessica's brain today about how to navigate and sustain secure attachments with multiple partners. But I think her perspective is fascinating for anyone looking to create meaningful connections in any type of relationship structure. Okay, let's get to my chat with Jessica Fern. I'm so excited to talk to you today for so many reasons. Firstly, most of the people I love and care most about have read your book. Mm. And that's always an exciting thing because it's, I feel like one of the ways that you kind of stay friends as adults is through what you consume. Mm. And so it's been so wonderful to be able to talk to people that I'm close with about this book. And also I was even at dinner with a friend the other night and I walked in and sat down and she was reading the book at dinner. I didn't even know that she... 
That's awesome. So it's 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 been really wonderful to just see your book show up in real life and seeing how people are navigating that. And I also want to share, you know, coming to this conversation, I'm coming in as someone who has explored polyamory and have my own lived experience of it. There's so many things I appreciate about how you unpack that experience. But I think the thing that really stuck out to me the most and a lot of books about polyamory or you know, different relational constellations don't tend to be written by people that are in the therapeutic space. Sometimes yeah. it's researchers or, you know, a first person, you know, experience. Like a memoir. Yeah, it, exactly. I think your approach provides a lot of spaciousness and also centers trauma. Oftentimes, when you're looking at any type of relational framework it doesn't include trauma it kind of specifically excludes it and i think folks that tend to be drawn towards polyamory do come from backgrounds that have a lot to do or have had trauma in their family of origin or in their relational experiences and so you know i think probably a great place to start with the conversation (laughs) even though i've just given you a whole (laughs) i mean so many things to think about laid it out yeah i've just laid it out is really curious about your path to becoming a therapist because it actually isn't traditional and i think it isn't yeah (laughs) it shows up so much in in the writing yeah my path to becoming a therapist was very circuitous i mean my mom would probably say i was a therapist as a little girl, (laughs) for better or worse, right? (laughs) I was honing those skills in early childhood. But yeah, I mean, I had studied psychology in undergrad, I had done a lot of internships in more of a therapeutic way, and then veered away from that for almost a decade, you know, and, but wasn't too far away from it. You know, I was in sort of holistic health. I was in conflict resolution. I was in activism and social justice work, you know, like it all braids together well in the end, I think. (laughs) It was really actually doing work in Rwanda with post-genocide folks that brought me like back to therapy, which is really interesting. So I was working on this larger scale of, you know, genocide recovery and doing research. And it was really hearing these intimate stories of people and their experiences of either participating in the killing or not participating in the killing and really saving lives and rescuing lives, risking their own, that it brought me back to want to do therapy, right? And so then that became, but then of course it wasn't going to be a traditional therapy route, right? It was narrative therapy initially, which like is looking to deconstruct discourse, right? (laughs) Looking to deconstruct power, looking at how within the therapeutic room, my individual problems are usually not personal. They're actually social and cultural, right? And then of course, you know, that just continued on with you know, focusing on trauma and attachment and internal family systems and all that good stuff. Yeah. Always love to hear IFS anywhere I can. And yes. Yeah. IFS really is, you know, I think IFS is such an incredible tool and everyone who I find some resonance with of late is on, is on that trajectory or, or using that framework. But, you know, I think again, what's so interesting 
is your background in conflict resolution such a key component to you know, how we exist in relationship with other people and how people are not trained in conflict resolution. Exactly. And and so they don't know how to navigate it. And I think drawing that thread out a little bit, it it makes me think about attachment theory, Mm -hmm. which is something that you really spend a lot of time on in the book. And I'm, I'm really curious about your interest in attachment theory. And I will also share, you know, I've avoided attachment theory for a long time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which probably tells you a lot about me. But as an intelligent person, I avoided it because I think intuitively I knew that if I actually dug into it, I might not really enjoy what it shared right, with me exactly. or what it revealed. Yeah, I think I didn't like attachment theory or didn't want to look at attachment theory either. <laughs> right? I'm with you. So here I I am, I wrote a book on it, right? (laughs) I mean, it was something that, you know, like Psych 101, you you go through the attachment styles and I found it really interesting. And when I became a mother, I was reading books about attachment parenting, but I like didn't, similar, I was like not applying it to my romantic adult relationships, you know? And it was really something that like, it was my clients showed me, you know, that as I was listening to them hours, 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 (laughs) and hearing them describe what their challenges were, it was like, oh, wait, they're describing that whole thing that I've once read about called attachment ruptures. (laughs) So it really came from that, you know, like, instead of me imposing, well, let's, impose attachment theory onto this now new field of polyamory therapy, right? Or non-monogamy. It was like hearing the struggles people were having and not just deferring to, well, you should just go back to monogamy because that's easier. You know, this is what the client showed me. So yeah, that's where it came from. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So most people think about attachment therapy in a one-to-one relationship. Exactly. or their introduction, you know, working as a doula for years, you know, previously was attachment parenting. Like this is right. something that's happening between parent and child. But you really figured out a way to build it into the framework of polyamory. Can you talk a little bit about that and 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 how how that works? Yeah. Yeah. And it came that came from Well, it came from two places. I mean, it came from me just seeing, oh, people, my clients, people now I know personally 
are polyamorous and they are successfully having more than one attachment figure in their life. And it's kind of like a, well, duh, like, you know, we all have multiple attachment figures in our life, whether it's more than one parent, siblings, best friends, you know, family of choice, like, we don't just have one attachment figure, you know, but it was the challenge of a partner of mine and I wanting to have secure attachment when we couldn't have any of the structural elements of attachment. We were never going to live together. We were never going to get married. We were never going to have kids, share finances. We weren't going to do those things that a lot of people, that's where they get their security from. We were never going to be primaries. I'm putting an air quote. <laughs> so it was this challenge as we started to try to do exercises or read things in the mainstream attachment literature and being like, we can't do it half of these things, you know? So I was like, I'm going to come up with a way we can do this. Like, I'm not giving up on this. (laughs) And that's sort of what, you know, how this all birthed coming up, especially with part three of the book, you know, which is the safe haven, the secure base and the hearts acronym of like, here's the things you can try and experiment with to do secure attachment in a relationship without having to have all those hierarchical or structural things at play. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about hearts. Can you walk us through that framework? Yes. So H is for here, meaning being present with each other. E is expressed delight. A is attunement. R is rituals and routines. T is the conflict resolution, turning towards after conflict, right? or turning towards the emotional bids that we make in relationship. And then S is secure attachment with self, which is how do we heart ourselves? How do we apply the H-E-A-R-T to ourself and really creating an internal sense of attachment? You know, when I think back to, you know, my experience with, with, with polyamory, which was while I was married. Yeah. You know, when I, when I first encountered you know, this framework, I was, I was really taken and not in the beginning, but as I've just been doing kind of more and more work, especially around attachment theory, figuring out how to self-soothe, how to have secure attachment with yourself. I mean, I would, I would venture out and say, it's actually the most important thing to have to start off with Mm -hmm. in terms of entering into a poly dynamic of any kind, because and again, this is just my opinion, but I'm curious about your thoughts because I think we we do so much to seek outward validation. And when you already are in a single relationship, but now you're wanting to venture out and create more attachment, I think it's so important to have a sense of like self-love or inner validation, like an inner validation system that isn't narcissistic, yes. <laughs> but you know, a place where you can pull and get your own cup filled because the the externalization of that without that base inside yeah. can 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 create a lot of tension. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like we we source so many things externally. We source our happiness, our desirability, our worthiness, our self-esteem. And it's not that we can't turn and receive those things from the external world or people. Like of course. But when we're sourcing it, we get in trouble, right? And I think monogamy can hide that, (laughs) right? And then you become non-monogamous and it's just like, whoa, I'm not sourcing from inside myself at all. I don't even know how, right? And like you said, there's complexities of, 
of life, of past, of, you know, culture that make it hard to ever have had that place. So yeah, the increased complexity of non-monogamy, I think really forces us or pushes us or gives us the opportunity to create more of this internal equanimity that's just really needed. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, this like internal complexity piece, I think is <laughs> is really important to lean into because I remember our couples therapists with my former partner, you know, kind of laughed and said to us, you know, she was like, honestly, polyamory or non-monogamy, most of the time you're doing more talking than fucking. You just are. <laughs> you're doing so much more processing. So much more processing. Yeah, and, exactly. And I think that's like really important for people to to know going into it. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like there's one of the stereotypes is that uh, non-monogamy is more people with an avoidant attachment style because like there are the, you know, biases they're avoiding intimacy by not committing to one person and i'm like and so so everyone hears the research shows it's not the case at all actually <laughs> but you're like wait wouldn't someone with more dismissive style actually not want to do all of this intimacy and processing <laughs> like it wouldn't be that interesting to them you know or it would just be too much yeah because there's just a need for so many more conversations about everything from scheduling to safe sex practices to how we're rolling this out so that everyone feels somewhat safe. Not everyone's going to feel completely comfortable, you know, pre-processing a date, post-processing a date. Like, the, pre, the pre and post-processing a date, the pre that is, that uh, is it. That, right. that was always the, really, I got to talk, yeah. talk about this and talk about it afterwards. Maybe we're talking right. about it two weeks late. You know, it's just... It's truly a bandwidth issue. Yeah, it really is. And if you stick with it, it gets better. Like, you know, you get to the point where there isn't as much processing in terms of the intensity that there is in the front. You know, it's a steep learning curve, right? And, you know, when you brought up scheduling, it made me think of non-monogamy and parenting. I'm really curious about your, you know, your insight around that, because I do think that non-monogamy, you know, is having a ripple effect. You know, it's moving not just from folks in their 20s and 30s, especially during the pandemic, which really, I think, pushed people to think about non-traditional relational, you know, structures. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you do it? What does it look like? I mean, what's been your experience for someone who's you know, says maybe has like a five-year-old or a 15-year-old and is trying to figure out how to make space for a non-monogamous relationship? Yeah. I mean, it's, I've seen it across the board of how it can really be amazing to be non-monogamous and, and have children. And then it can also just be, it's like, you know, the child takes up a significant amount of time and resources, rightfully so. And so can, there can be this tension with, your co-parent of just like, oh, I get to stay home and be with the kids and you get to go out and have fun. You know, so a lot of the dynamics that might have been invisible imbalances in the parenting dynamic are going to get exposed in the non-monogamy process of who feels like they're holding more of the weight or less and so on. You know, but a lot of people, it's great once they have maybe live-in partners, 
or committed partners, that there's more parents, there's more adults that are raising children, you know? Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Again, I think this idea of chosen family, you know, raising a child in a collective, I think has so much benefit. I think there is a lot there because I think parenting, especially in Western culture, especially in the United States, is really lonely. It's so isolating. It's super isolating. And so, you know, I think there is something to be said there. I want to track back to just thinking about attachment styles. If you could just quickly sum up what they are and also just share, you know, how they kind of find their way into a non-monogamous dynamic and how do you make your way towards polysecurity? The very, very basic overview of the four attachment styles is the secure style, which is someone who feels more secure in themselves. They enjoy intimacy with others. They can do closeness really well, but they're also okay by themselves, right? And they don't have a lot of anxiety that you're going to leave me, you're going to abandon me, and they don't have a lot of withdrawing, just like, get away, don't, you know, engulf me, please, right? The other three insecure attachment styles, the first one's avoidant or dismissive, and that's someone who does more of this pullback and this withdrawing. So they still want connection and relationships and intimacy, but usually it's like to a point and then I need a break and then I need to like go auto-regulate by myself, right? So they're usually sort of labeled as more of the lone wolf or the island kind of type. And there's someone who came from a history where for usually very good reasons, they had to sort of minimize their attachment longings, right? Either my parents, caregivers were just weren't even physically around or they were physically around, but not emotionally attuned enough in the way that our nervous system needs, right? So there's this like shutting down of the attachment system. Then the other end is where there's an amping up of the attachment system. There's this high focus outwardly. Do you not love me? Am I enough for you? You know, there's just a lot of like you were describing before sort of turning and sourcing outwards to feel okay, to feel validation, to feel worth and love, right? And they have a usually activated attachment system that doesn't get soothed very easily, even when they get what they want, right? And then the, the fourth style or the third insecure one is disorganized or called fearful withdrawn, which kind of vacillates between the two that I just spoke about. You know, and it's usually cases where there's been more severe, extreme, or complex trauma. And there's this paradox in the nervous system of my attachment system is activated. I want closeness and connection, but the one I want it from is activating my defense mechanisms of Mm. fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. So that's this like, I want you, I'm afraid of you, or I want you get away from me back and forth, it can happen. Yeah. 
And so we don't usually just have one attachment style. We can have multiple attachment styles with our early childhood experiences and as well as with our partners and they can change through time, which is a good news because if you've come from an insecure past, you can earn a secure attachment as an adult. So yeah, so that's the styles. And then the other part was sort of how do we get to the poly security? The way I think of it is it is, it's two pieces. It's secure attachment with your partners and then also secure attachment with yourself. And I think anyone would benefit from more secure attachment with themselves, especially just in our culture, which is so externally focused, you know, or like status and achievement focused, right? To have value and worth. But in non-monogamy, it feels imperative. It's just too much to navigate, you know, the the increased complexity without feeling like you have an inner center and core that you can resource from. Right. And then the other piece of how do we do this with multiple partners? And so that's what I get to in the book, the hearts, the safe haven, secure base is sort of like, here's how you do it. And I'm not going to tell you to do monogamous behaviors. I think what really struck me a couple moments ago is when you were talking about just the, well, you actually just said it again right now, but these like normal monogamy, you know, behaviors, you know, like a shared bank account and living together, et cetera, et cetera. A shared bed, right. Shared bed. You know, within the hearts framework, I'm really curious about rituals and routines for someone who is wanting to step into a, polydynamic or is currently in one and struggling because, you know, the the cultural framework we live in, which we are so just, you know, plugged into whether we want to be or not, is making it hard to validate it as a relationship because it doesn't have all these other pieces. Exactly. How do you develop those rituals and routines outside of sex? So rituals and routines, I mean, making it very specific to each connection. Right. And a lot of them just naturally organically evolve and you realize, oh, yeah, we already have certain terms of endearment we use with each other. We already have sort of the little rituals of when we're together, how we greet each other, or how we say goodbye, you know, or the things we like to do together. Or, you know, on Sundays, we have our little book club between you, me and whoever else, you know, that there's ways that, or check ins that you do you know, ways that you say good morning and good night to each other. I had this partner, we used this app that had, it was like we had our whole universe. Like we had little checklists and to-dos and we could like both put our thumbs on the same time and it would vibrate. (laughs) Right. It was amazing. And like when that relationship ended, there was this huge grief in like having to disconnect Mm. from this universe that we had created with little love notes and like it had all our pictures in it you know yeah yeah so there's a lot of ways and you know my live-in primary partner was like jealous of that app that I had with this other partner that I didn't live with because it was like yeah it's a different universe I have that term you know different universe you know makes me think about that quote I can't remember you know who it's by but you know, the idea that we hold multitudes, you know, I think there's often a feeling of scarcity. And I think relational scarcity, uh, 
a scarcity, maybe as Esther would say, of eros. You know, how much mm-hmm. can we pour into? But you know, I, I think we are. I think we are in, in an expansive and elastic time. As much as there has been so much constriction and loss and grief and rapid change, and you know, I think I think especially for women, non-binary people, you know, as well maybe identify here. There's so much oppression in the culture around yeah. how and where we are allowed to exist, whether it's economically or, you know, in our careers, et cetera. I think one of the things that I found in the process of polyamory was it was really liberating. It was yeah. liberating to step outside of a framework that wasn't really working for me and to co-design something else. And, and I, I do understand why for people that are maybe more creative or entrepreneurial or, you know, might be more attracted to a, a poly or non-monogamous dynamic just because it's creative. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Deeply, it's deeply imaginative and creative, but it does also in its creativity and its, in its imaginativeness holds a lot of risk, you know, yeah. which is its own thing. Yeah. It's kind of a DIY relationship. It's warranting an entire chapter in my next book of sort of the awakening of the self that can happen when somebody opens up, you know, and it's, it is a big deal of it is around the oppression women have felt around their sexuality, around their relationship options, but it far extends that, you know, it starts to open up the whole Pandora's box sometimes too, for better or worse for people. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of women and are the ones that initiate non-monogamy when they're in a monogamous marriage, right? Hello. That was, that was, that was me. I was like, was so, <laughs> it's like, so how are we, how are we really doing? Cause I have, I have some thoughts about right. some options that we could look at, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think too, you know, again, there's not to over, not to overtly gender the experience of mm-hmm. non-monogamy, but I think, as people who can create pregnancies in our bodies, we just are really dynamic. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. like if you can make another person, I feel like you could probably date or be with more than one person. (laughs) You know, I just think like there is a plasticity to our bodies that just, yeah, makes it makes makes that possible somehow. Yeah. No yeah, research, I mean, not research backed. <laughs> right. Well, there is opinion. a lot of, yeah, because right, the stereotype or the conception would be that men want to do non-monogamy because they just want lots of sex. But like you had said earlier, like, there's a lot more talking than there is sex, right? Way more. So often I see women come into non-monogamy better equipped to have difficult conversations. Of course, not always, you know. And then women feel liberated out of the oppression they've experienced. And a lot of men now feel marginalized and out of privilege in a way they've never experienced. So there can be this flop that happens, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot easier for women to find dates typically in non-monogamy than men. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that flip that you're speaking to, you know, a thing that I would put out there and I'm curious if you, you know, if you agree is honestly, if you're listening to this and you 
are thinking about polyamory or, or or starting to negotiate it, you know, within yourself, one of the best pieces, one of the best pieces of advice that I would give was, would be to get into therapy. Yeah. Pre- preventatively. Well, <laughs> like, preventative. Just, just get yeah. it. <laughs> Go. Go now. <laughs> yeah. Because even Absolutely. if nothing is wrong, you're just like, we're doing great. But like, I'm really curious about it. And I, I would just say, okay, well, yeah. 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 And specifically a poly experience coach, therapist, practitioner, right? Right. Because, but absolutely just for that preventative factor of someone who will be there to support you, because there's going to be rapids down the river. There's, of course, you know, and to expect that, know that it's normal, it's okay. And get the support first. Yeah. Because it's hard. Because when I see couples or multiple partners or a polycule, I have a polycule I work with and they're coming to me four years after a lot of the damage has happened. And that damage happened over four years, you know? So it's like, yeah, this is hard to repair. Some of this is, and some of this isn't repairable at this point. Yeah. 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 I, I really appreciate you sharing, sharing that because it, it, it this is, I, I think this is a, 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 the type of situation that you want to prepare for. Yeah, it, it, it is so much easier mm-hmm. if you go in with the awareness, like read this book together, read Polysecure yeah. together before venturing out, like have some of these conversations and get support. Because basically, I think you're opening your relationship up to more people. Yeah. So open up your support system to more people, too. Yeah, well said. Yeah. And something I've been saying more recently too, is like, don't have the polyamorous people in your life. Just be the people you're dating, like get poly friends, (laughs) right? Cause, cause you can't rely on your monogamous friends and the few advice as you might have previously when you were going through a relationship challenge. And so to have folks that understand the experience is really important. For folks who identify themselves as trauma survivors and or maybe seeing themselves say more on you know the avoidive or dismissive end of the attachment spectrum or on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum what advice do you have for them as they navigate polyamory yeah right so sort of like we even just said like get support right? Get all the supports that you can. And so professional support resources, just as like books and podcasts that are helpful, you know, friends that understand, you know, entering into communities that feel supportive, but I'd say like, it's okay to go at the pace you need to go at. Yeah. You know, and if you need to go slow, that's usually better in the long run is what I see, you know, and And if you're in, well, there's so much probably advice here too, of like, if your partners that are opening up and one has more of a trauma history than the other, and it's this balance of how that trauma history shouldn't be the only factor that's leading the way. And yet it needs to be really considered as you walk forward through this, you know. Jessica, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jessica Fern. You can learn more about her work at jessicafern.com. That's Jessica, F-E-R-N.com. And pick up a copy of her book, Polysecure. Thanks again for tuning in. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.